Happy New Year. In this country, we say Happy New Year. Thank you for correcting my English with stinks. I am Nanja Ibuko, exchange student from Cameroon. Ha 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 ha. Nanja Ibuko. Merry New Year. That one goes out to all of the Eddie Murphy fans out there. Trading Places, a classic. If you've ever seen the movie, that is the famous scene on the train with the late Paul Gleason. Eddie Murphy goes into the compartment and Gleason is there. And it was just classic Eddie Murphy. Paul Gleason, if you recall, also had famous roles in The Breakfast Club. And Die Hard. Trust me, if you've never seen it, Trading Places, check it out. Anyway, as we say in this country, Happy New Year. Here's to a happy and healthy 2024. Welcome to the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast. My name is Brian DiNovellis. We are sponsored by the North Jersey Vipers Softball Club. If you or your daughter or someone you know is looking to play high-level softball for an elite club team, Visit their website at NorthJerseyVipers.com. Indoor hitting has begun. Softball season will begin very soon. Check them out, North Jersey Vipers Softball Club. All right, here's hoping for success for all of our teams in the Tri-State in 2024 as we go full steam ahead into conference play over the next two months. A lot to go over. It was a long holiday week. St. John's and Rutgers, they avoid the by-game blues and survived scares against Hofstra and Stonehill. Hey, Fairfield has won six straight, if you haven't noticed. And is Iona beginning to find its form heading into 2024? And will Monmouth be a factor this year in the Colonial Athletic Association? Let's begin with Rutgers, my, oh, my, oh, my. Thank you. Thank you, Derek Simpson, for saving Rutgers season and saving them from an embarrassment of losing to one of the worst teams in Division One. And I say that with all due respect. I'm talking about Stonehill. This team has been Division Two forever, all right? They have only been in Division One for one full season. This is their second year of playing Division I basketball. So, yes, this would have been the worst loss under Steve Peichel, but it took a big shot from Derek Simpson, a huge three in a game where Rutgers couldn't throw the ball into the Raritan River. They couldn't throw the ball into the Atlantic Ocean. They were five for 28, four for 27 before that three by Simpson. They had missed 23 threes. This team was 26% in field goal percentage. They had missed 13 free throws. 22 of 35, 13 free throws. Guess what? Stonehill took 14 in the entire game. It is amazing Rutgers won this game. It was their worst shooting performance of the season by far. Look, Rutgers should have won this game by 20, right? Even Steve Peichel said it afterward. Hey, we gave the fans their money worth, right? They all had to stay in their seats for the end of this one. 
obviously he would have liked it the other way. If the fans would have been leaving with two minutes to go and the team up by 20 and he could empty his bench. But sometimes this happens in sports. Sometimes it happens when an underdog tries to, and in some ways does defeat a team it's not supposed to beat. So that's why after the game, Steve Peichel put on a happy face. He wasn't mad, Steve Peichel. He goes, guys, we won the game. Be happy about that. He did not want to disappoint their New Year's. But if we unpeel the layers here, let's not forget, Rutgers was a 27-point favorite. They were looking for an easy game, an easy W, before they go into the gauntlet of what is the Big Ten regular season. So, yes, they got the win. And, yes, Derek Simpson, uh, who had lost his starting spot, regained it because Jermichael Davis couldn't play because of a lower leg injury. We'll get to that in a little bit. But it was Simpson who saved the day. Simpson, who was not having a good shooting game, was 3 for 14 before he hit that 3. Had the guts, the wherewithal, to take that shot with Rutgers down by 2. So Simpson saved them. Someone had to save them. And Rutgers, when it's all said and done, has a resume that is, let's face it, folks, right where you thought they'd be record-wise, eight and three. Maybe some people had nine and two, but either way, eight and three, nine and two, heading into the Big Ten. But let's take a look underneath this onion. Let's peel the layers, all right? The positives, this team is playing good defense. They're playing Steve Peichel defense. They are the top team in the Big Ten in points allowed per game and block shots. They're doing what you ex you'd expect from a Steve Peichel team on the defensive end. That's not the problem. It's the offense that worries you. Who is going to save this team? Who is going to make big shots? It happened against Seton Hall, but other than that game, where have you seen the consistency? Where have you seen a team that gives you the confidence that they can do it in the next 19 games in the Big Ten? Look at the stats. They don't lie. Rutgers is last in the Big Ten in points scored. Last in field goal percentage. Under 40% as a team. 0 0.397. They're shooting under 40% as a team. They're last in free throw percentage at 64%. Second to last in three-point field goal percentage. Only Maryland, oh, by the way, is a worse three-point shooting team. And they are second to the last in the Big Ten in rebounding margin. So they're not shooting. They're not rebounding. They're not shooting free throws. At some point, you have to put the ball in the basket, right? Yeah. Can they fix it? I don't know. I'm not so sure. Can they have moments where they do put the ball in the basket? Yes. Yes, they can. And yes, they will. We don't know when it will come. Because, because the first 13 games is, is, is a third of your season, more than a third of your season, almost a half of your regular season. 
So that's a good enough sample to know that Rutgers is not a good, I'm not forget about great, not a good offensive team. They are a very good defensive team. That is where they're going to have to win games. And at the end of the day, the NCAA doesn't care about how many points you scored, how many rebounds you had, what's your free throw percentage. They're going to look at your wins and losses. So Rutgers is going to have to win ugly. They're going to have to win defensively. Can they do it? We will find out. After the loss, Steve Peichel painted a pretty picture. It was like it was like a Bob Ross oil painting. Nice little tree here. Little cloud. How about a little bird? Yes. You're going to paint a rosy picture. And it's all there for you to see. And it's nice. It's pretty. Look at it. The gentle breeze, the clouds, the trees. Can you see it? Steve Peichel did. After the game, Steve Peichel said his team had great looks. Those shots just didn't fall. Here's Steve. I thought we got wide open looks. We obviously got to finish some of those. I do think we're a better three-point shooting team. Um, they give you threes. And then I thought our guys got a little tentative. I liked Andre teed them up. A couple were in and out. Um, you know, so I, I, when we get good shots, I don't worry about it. I want to make more free throws. And that's what we've kind of focused on. I was thankful that... You know, we got 20 offensive rebounds when you miss as much as we did. But, um, you know, sometimes you got to win games like this when you're not making shots, figure out another way. And, and you know, old-fashioned kind of Rutgers game, you got to figure out a way. And uh, But I watched the tape. I did like, I thought Milwaukee got a great open look. I liked Andre's open look. You know, like I think those guys can really make those shots. Noah is another guy that can make shots. I got to get him teeing it up. I love that he teed it up. Derek at the end with a big smile after. And, uh, you know, so we got to get better, obviously. We got to make more free throws. I think that's a huge key for us moving forward, and we can. Hey, I applaud Peichel. Good job by the coach. He knows his team better than we do. But look, if Derek Simpson did not hit that three, this would be doom and gloom. That was the biggest shot of Simpson's career, and good for him. All right. This is a kid who had high expectations this year. This is a kid who thought this would be his team. That he would have the keys to the car. And he was handed those keys in the game against Princeton in the season opener. And then dad took the keys away. And dad didn't ground him. But dad said, you have to earn those keys back. And to his credit, Simpson battled. Simpson tried to eliminate the outside noise and the critics. He worked his way back into the starting lineup and he has helped this team. But let's face it, Jamichael Davis has done a better job at running this offense. Jamichael Davis has done a better job of holding onto the ball, getting players involved, hitting big shots, and he has deserved the keys to the car. But you never know when your number will be called upon a game again. And like the backup quarterback or the backup goaltender, you need to perform when your number's called. And good for Derek Simpson. He performed. Was he great? No. But he was great in the final minutes in crunch time when Rutgers needed him to be. And that's what the fans and the coach and Derek Simpson will remember. 
He's been coming off the bench. We got a three guard rotation. He's a starter, obviously. And uh, without Jay Mike today, had to log a ton of minutes. Noah had to log a ton of minutes. Um, you know, so was just real. I thought he was aggressive from the start. I also, a huge key to the game, um, and I watched enough film on him. Tony Felder, number 10, is, is a really good player uh, for them. And he was a guy we really were concerned with. And, and these two guys, between Noah and he, you know, he went three for 20 from the floor. So we took out their best player. That's always a key part of it, too. So not just the shots went in, it's the defense, too, that you play. And, you know, Derek was able to do a really good job. But we had a lot of faith in Derek and a lot of confidence in him. And I love that he teed it up. You know, he loved that he teed it up. So good for Derek Simpson, because we don't know how long Jermichael Davis is going to be out. He has a bone bruise in his leg. His status for Ohio State and Iowa is unknown. But either way, whether it's Davis or Simpson, Rutgers needs excellent point guard play. So hopefully this is a moment that Simpson can bottle up and he can use whether he's starting or coming off the bench. And did you see the, the video of Simpson? Chris Corso, head of media relations at Rutgers, posted it on his Twitter page. I mean, he had him locked in right in front of him. And there's Simpson, ready to receive the ball, hands in a triple threat position, caught the ball, didn't even flinch, didn't even think about it, released it, rotation, money. Great video, and you saw a great moment for Rutgers and a great moment for Simpson in a game that they could not lose. I mean, it wasn't just Simpson. I get it. But he was there in the biggest moment. All right? Cliff Amore continues to have some great moments and some moments where you wish the big guy had showed up. He needs to be more consistent night in and night out. He was great against Stonehill. 17 points, a career-high 17 rebounds, got to the line. Rutgers needs to get the ball to the big fella. They need to get the ball inside to Cliff Moore. I get it. Teams are double-teaming him, but he has to get touches and draw the defense out. And when he kicks it out, these guys need to hit those shots. The Andre Hyatts, the Oscar Palmquist, the Noah Fernandes, they need to hit these shots more teams are going to go zone against Rutgers. And why wouldn't they? Until they prove they can hit the, hit the outside shots. So, as they go forward, Rutgers is facing a daunting week. Probably their toughest week in the Big Ten. At Ohio State and at Iowa. A split is what Rutgers is looking for, minimum. Can they do it? Well, Ohio State has arguably the best backcourt in the Big Ten. Bruce Thornton, Roddy Gale Jr., they are a pair of super softs. Between them, they're averaging 32 points a game and then throw in 6-7 wing Jamison Battle. I mean, Ohio State is 11-2. They have the guards, they have the forwards, they have the depth, they have the talent. And Rutgers is going to have to go in there and win an ugly game. And then after that, Rutgers has Iowa, the top-scoring team in the Big Ten. They're averaging 87 points a game. If you saw their game against Seton Hall in the uh, tournament out in San Diego on Thanksgiving, you know they have good guards. You know they can shoot threes. Peyton Sanford, Tony Battle, 
Patrick McCaffrey. They love shooting threes. They're an offensive team. They are a brutal defensive team. You can score against them. So it's going to be the battle of wits. Who's going to dictate tempo? Rutgers, the great defensive team versus Iowa, the great offensive team. They also have a versatile big man and Ben Crickey. We'll see what Cliff Amore and Andre Wolfel can do against him. Get the split. Rutgers needs to somehow come out of there with a split. Right now, they're 0-1 in the Big Ten. 0-3, you're digging yourselves a big hole. All right, the schedule did not do any favors coming out of the New Year's, but here's Rutgers. They're going to have to play 19 of them one way or another. At Ohio State, at Iowa, find a way to get a split. Let's talk St. John's. St. John's is another team that survived a scare against a very good mid-major team in Hofstra, a team that's going to be right there in the thick of things in the Colonial Athletic Association with Charleston and Towson and the other teams in that conference and maybe even Monmouth. They're going to be a factor. That is a team that is battle-tested. That is a team that has one of the top-scoring duos in the country in Tyler Thomas and Darlin Stone Dubar. They call him D-Stone, by the way. It says it in the media notes, which I, I thought was awesome. Wants to be known as D-Stone. So Darlin Stone, we're going to call him D-Stone. And Rick Pitino knew that they were in for a dogfight with Hofstra because his Iona teams have had played Hofstra and they knew that Thomas and Dubar could hit shots and they were as good as advertised. This Hofstra team battled. They would not go away. Every time St. John's tried to uh, pull away, Hofstra hit big shots. They made St. John's defend the three-point line. Thomas had 24. Dubar had 23. Do the math. That is 47 points from one of the top two scoring duos in the country. They hit big shot after big shot and made St. John's work for everything they got. But whoo, you can exhale, Johnny's fans, because you survived. This was a three-point game with under a minute to go. St. John's had the ball, side out with less than 10 seconds left on the shot clock. They came out of a timeout and ran a play for the guy that was having the best game of his St. John's career and Dennis Jenkins. Jenkins got the ball, took a couple of dribbles across the key to his right, pulled up from about 19 feet and buried the jumper and said, game. That put St. John's up five. And Jenkins, uh, from that point on, hit three more free throws, had five points in the final 50 seconds of play. He was the best player for St. John's. 21 points, nine rebounds, eight assists, and zero turnovers. Every time St. John's needed a bucket, Dennis Jenkins got the big shot. It was a game where St. John's didn't have Chris Ledlam, and that hurt them on the boards. 
All right, they lost their power forward. It was a game where R.J. Luis was forced into the starting lineup. He had only played two games all season. Still doesn't have his legs under him. He's a natural three, had to play the four. Give R.J. Luis a lot of credit. He finished with 12 points and 10 rebounds, shook off some rust. All right, give this kid another month, another three to four weeks. If he can stay healthy, R.J. Luis is going to be seen as a player who can put St. John's on his back. For one night, Dennis Jenkins did. R.J. Luis has the capability and the talent to do that as well. He just needs to stay healthy. And after the game, Dennis Jenkins talked about Luis and said, I love him, man. This kid has no fear. He just goes out there and balls. And, and that's a credit to a guy who, who has a lot of talent, knows what he needs to do, knows what he can do, plays to his strengths, doesn't think out there, and just plays ball. But he needs to stay on the court. He needs to stay healthy. It was a night where St. John's didn't have Joel Soriano at his best. Patino said he's not injured, just had an off game. I'll say. 14 points and four rebounds would be a nice night for most, most players, but not one of the top two centers in the Big East. All right? That is an off night. He had zero defensive rebounds. Six foot 11, had four offensive rebounds and zero on the defensive end. Hey, he had an off night. All right, but it also happens when you have to go out there and you have to guard players who are six feet because Hofstra went small ball because he's being drawn away from the basket and he's not in position to rebound. So that had something to do with it. All right. And afterward, if you listen to Rick Patino's comments, he really credited Speedy Claxton. And he said that from the get go. He wasn't even asked about the Hofstra head coach. Patino had high praise, went out of his way to say Claxton is one of the best coaches he's ever coached against. And of course, Slick Rick had to say all the names, right? We know he's shook hands with Wooden. We know. He's coached against, you name it, right? From Dean Smith to Mike Krzyzewski to Jim Calhoun to Bill Self, on and on and on to John Calipari. You name the coaches. He's coached against them. And now Dan Hurley, I'll put him in that class. But he called Speedy Claxton a rising star in the game because, quote, he takes advantage of every mismatch that's out there. Hofstra is going to win games in the CAA. And if they get into the NCAA tournament, they're going to be a tough out for any team that draws them. So good for St. John's. They got the win, just like Rutgers. They couldn't take their foot off the gas. They had to fight until the end. But how about that crowd at UBS Arena? St. John's is going to play three games there this year. That was their first of three. They'll also have to play DePaul and Seton Hall. Uh, you'd rather play at Madison Square Garden. Heck, you'd rather play at Carneseca. But St. John's is trying to get their brand out there. 
they're trying to rebrand St. John's and get the fans excited, get the fans interested in the New York metropolitan area. It's not going to be easy. You have to get stars. You have to win games. Then the fans will come. If you win, they will come. You have to win, and then you have to get high and exciting players, and Patino is trying to do that. But for now, UBS Arena wasn't exactly a home court advantage. Patino talked about that afterward. He talked about not having an abundance of fans. And then he did something interesting. They weren't even playing UConn. And he made it a point to say, and I'm quoting him here, we're not UConn or Villanova with fans. And there's a reason. We lost the brand. Louis has been gone a long time. Louis Carnesecca, of course. So we've got to build the brand back and the people will come back, just like I just said. And then he said, we are not playing UConn at MSG. We are 100% going to play UConn at Carnesecca, and that's not a joke. Will that happen? I don't know. Is Patino trying to drum up some interest in the game at Madison Square Garden because he knows that, like last year, it turns into more of a home court for UConn than it does for St. John's because five, 6,000 UConn fans take that train from Connecticut and go to the Garden? Anytime UConn plays at Madison Square Garden, they call it Stores South. It's a home court advantage for UConn. Patino knows he's trying to make it a home court advantage for St. John's. We shall see February 3rd. But in the meantime, Patino is trying to get the message out there. We are 100% going to play UConn at Carnesecca. Is he telling the truth? Will he follow through? UConn is not a team that St. John's has played at Carnesecca in a long, long time. You have to go back to 1990, the last time UConn played at Carnesecca. And at that time, it was called Alumni Hall. That's how long ago it was. Patino is trying to create what UConn has, what St. John's once had. Look, they didn't sell out the Xavier game. Carnesecca seats less than 6,000 fans and they didn't sell out the Xavier game. Would they sell out UConn? Sure they would. But St. John's has to get to the point where they're selling out a 6,000 seat, a 5,600 seat arena to be exact on a regular basis. Wherever they play, Rick is evaluating this year and next year, there's probably going to be some changes. So what does Dan Hurley think about all this? He was asked by the UConn media for his comments. And in a Dan Hurley type of response, he said, hey, I'm not worried about what we're playing St. John's next year. I'm worried about playing DePaul. That's our next opponent. But then he added, and I quote, when you've been ranked in the top five or whatever we've been the whole year and you're the defending national champs 
and you've had all the success we've had at UConn, everyone's gunning for us. Then he talks about St. John's. And he said they haven't had much success, especially when they went from Fran Fraschilla to Mike Jarvis, and they had those real good teams with Ron Artest. They're trying to do what they need to do to build their program up. There are programs that haven't been to the Final Four or been to the NCAA tournament in 20 years. So they're obviously a lot of punching up. So a little jab there by Hurley. He's not wrong. He's stating what Patino knows. You need to win. You need to bring back the brand. You need to bring the fans back. So little verbal jabs back and forth. We'll see what happens there. Will it add interest to the UConn-St. John's game? We'll see what the garden is like on February 3rd, and then we'll have to wait another year or so to find out where UConn will play. In the meantime, St. John's needs to figure out a way to start defending better. They need to figure out a way to get healthy. They need Chris Ledlam back, and they need to find a way to beat Butler. That's what the immediate future holds. Patino was asked after the game, will Chris Ledlam be able to play? He said, don't count on it, but he's had a few days to get better. St. John certainly needs Ledlam against Butler. And that is going to be, I'm not going to say must win. It's only January, but it is a game that St. John's needs to win because they're at home at Carneseca. And if you look at the schedule after that, it only gets tougher because following the Butler game, St. John's is at Villanova, Providence at Madison Square Garden, who's ranked 23rd in the country in the latest AP poll, at Creighton, at Seton Hall, Marquette and Villanova at Madison Square Garden, and at Xavier. That's their January. The schedule in February gets a little lighter. But these are games, if you want to be an NCAA tournament team, and Butler is one of those teams that is right there on the fringe, right? Fifth, sixth, seventh place in the Big East. That's who St. John's is fighting with. You're at home. It's a Big East game. You're at Carneseca. You need to win this game. It's a very interesting matchup. For many reasons. Butler is better than advertised. It's a homecoming for Posh Alexander. Who spent his first three years at St. John's. We know about that. He's having a nice season for Butler. Thad Mata loves him running the offense. He's averaging 10 points. Five rebounds. Four and a half assists. Two steals. Posh is doing Posh things. It's a team that has gelled a lot more quickly with transfers than St. John's has. They have four transfers leading them. Hosh, Pierre Brooks, Jamil Telford, and DJ Davis. Four transfers leading Butler in scoring. The team is 10-3. and three. They're better than advertised. And they're coming to Carneseca on Tuesday trying to get a win. They took Providence into overtime. 
They could have won that game if not for a, a big three by ticket gains in the final seconds. This Butler team's good. But so is St. John's. They need to defend. Hopefully they get Chris Ledlam back and find a way to get a win and get to 2-1 and one in the Big East. All right, let's go around the Tri-State as we wrap up this podcast. Let's start with Fairfield. Great job by the Stags. They have won six straight games. They returned to MAC play this week. This team is red hot. They were one and six. They're now seven and six. After beating LeMoyne, this is the Stags' longest win streak in six years. What a game by Caleb Fields. He had a career-high 27 points. This team can beat you in many ways. I've talked about their backcourt, Caleb Fields, Jalen Leach, Bryson Goodine. Jasper Floyd is one of the best defenders in the country, averaging 2.6 steals per game. The Stags visit Siena on Friday and host first place Marist on Sunday. If they sweep those, they're going to send a message to the rest of the Mac. We are for real. Chris Casey has this team playing great basketball, streaking into Mac play at the right time. Keep your eye on the Stags. Let's also keep your eye on Iona. As they say, objects in the rearview mirror are closer than they appear. Because here come the champs. Here come the defending MAC champs. They've won three of four. They closed out December with a heck of a road win at Harvard. Greg Gordon, the guy who does it all for Iona, 18 points and 12 rebounds. Edan Tritu had 15 points in his return to Harvard. It was a great homecoming for Tritu. They have the seven-footer Osborne Shima back. He missed the first 10 games with an injury and has now played three games. A lot like R.J. Luis, he has to get his legs under him. But when you have a seven-footer with his, with his athleticism in the MAC, it makes you dangerous. It gives you more options offensively and defensively. You can work inside out. You can go to the big man. He can stretch the defense. He can take you away from the hoop, take you off the dribble. He was a preseason first-team all-max selection. He's the player that Iona was missing. This team is one, three, or four. Their freshman guards are dynamite. Jeremiah Quigley and Gene Aaron Gurren are getting better and better. They continue to improve. They continue to impress. The Gales could be dangerous as well in the MAC. They visit St. Peter's on Friday. The Peacocks are 2-0 in the MAC. Iona is a slight favorite in, in this game, but St. Peter's is at home. So that will be a very intriguing game to start the new year for both teams in MAC play. Meanwhile, in Monmouth, West Long Branch, the Hawks lost to number 12, Oklahoma. The final score says 72-56, but this was a one-point game with 12 minutes to play. Great game by Jack Collins. He had 14 points and seven rebounds. 
even though they lost, Monmouth is 7-6, and six, and that's significant. It's the first time the Hawks have a winning record in non-conference play in years. It matches their win total from last year of seven. They will be a factor in the CAA. And Princeton, they finished a non-conference 12-1. and one. They gutted out a road win over Delaware. This team has won six true road games. They own a neutral site win over Rutgers. They are the favorites heading into the Ivy League play. They are the best team in the Ivy League, but that conference is loaded. Yale, Cornell, Harvard, Columbia is improved. The Tigers host Harvard on Saturday. That is a 2 p.m. contest as they begin Ivy League play. Xavier Lee continues to be this team's MVP. If you had to ask me, who is the Ivy League player of the year right now in the non-con? It's Xavier Lee. And this is on a team that has Matalaco and Caden Pierce. Xavier Lee leads this team in scoring at 17 points per game. He is the point guard that has the ball in his hands, sets the team up, can do it all. They have a three-headed monster in Lee, Pierce, and Alaco. And let's not forget about our boy, Zach Martini. Big game against Harvard. Need to start out the Ivy League with a win at home in Jadwin. It is a great week ahead. Here's to a healthy and prosperous 2024. And before we go, here's my big wish for 2024. We have five teams in the tri-state that make the NCAA tournament. That is my wish. Five teams from the tri-state. UConn and Princeton appear to be on their way. Can we get Iona or St. Peter's from the MAC? Or can Ryder finally get it together? Can Sacred Heart or FDU or Central Connecticut get a bid from the Northeast? Can Hofstra get a bid from the CAA or even Monmouth? Can Rutgers or Seton Hall go on a surprising one? And it would be surprising. Five teams from the Tri-State Tournament. That is my wish for 2024. Before I go, I just want to take this time to thank all of you who have listened to the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast for the last three years. We have grown this podcast from just a thought into what it is today. Please continue to share the podcast, download it, write a review if you have a couple of minutes. So thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting me. Thanks also to our sponsor, the NorthJerseyVipers.com and their great leader, Bob Germano. Check out their website at NorthJerseyVipers.com. Until next time, enjoy the games, everyone. Thanks for listening. My name is Brian Dean Ellis. So long. <laughs>